Are you in Wimbledon? Just outside Wimbledon, uh, near Kingston. But yeah, it's it's really cold, but no rain. Good. I, I lived in uh, on Merton High Street for a year and then Kingston Road in Rains Park for a year. So I know the area. Show me the way to Plough Lane. I watched uh, some dogs, Gary. I, I went because my friend Kieran had a birthday gathering and it was at the dog track. Have you, were you able uh, to go yeah. to the dogs? Yes, yes. I went a few times there. Obviously just being down the road from, from the original ground. Yeah, I didn't realise... Uh, how close it was because my knowledge of Wimbledon begins at Selhurst Park um, okay. and um, I wasn't even I was alive but not really conscious about football because I was four years old when the crazy gang beat the culture club were you at Wembley Stadium yes I was on that famous day I should say I've seen Dave Besant play on the Wembley turf because he's the kind of goalkeeper who always comes out at half time to try and save a penalty from a competition winner uh, but <laughs> right. Besson had a much more famous day. I mean, well, firstly, does it feel like 34 years ago? Um, yes and no, because obviously um, I can, can remember that day, as probably most Wimbledon fans can, being as famous as it was, um, and really, really put us on the map. So, yeah, everything about the day is quite clear. But I say no, because obviously a lot's happened since then. So uh, we've had lots of, obviously, trials and tribulations since then that are maybe overtaken that as, as a landmark in our history. It's such a shame that that happened because the Wimbledon story, which has been recounted in several books, one by Eric Samuelson called All Together Now, and then it's called The Crazy Gang, isn't it? Which is Wally Barnes and Harry Bassett. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, it was Bassett that really sort of like got, got that underway um, with the crazy gang spirit. Um, I think you can probably credit him for that mostly. And so good did Bassett do that... Elton plucked him from Wimbledon to be Graham Taylor's replacement. When when that happened, Wimbledon were known for playing position of maximum opportunity football, and so were Watford. So I imagine that Wimbledon fans would have said, yes, uh, Watford is a good fit for Bassett's brand of football. Yeah, it went sort of hand in hand with obviously what they were doing, and obviously felt he, he could do uh, better elsewhere, with, with obviously with the money not being as... as uh, as, as, as freely spread about because obviously we're coming to an era then when it was the end of the 80s, early 90s. But that move made sense for him at the time. And it could have fallen, fallen uh, flat on our face, really. But obviously we, we got um, Goulding, uh, who, who then took us on to the FA Cup win. So it was, it was the season before that uh, yeah. Bassett left. It, it's a bit like what happened with Aston Villa in 1982, if you remember that far back. And we'll get to 1982 later on, because you've also written Out of the Shadows uh, about England's 1982 team. But uh, it was Ron Saunders who left. He built the team, and then it was Tony Barton who took over, and he was the manager when Villa won the European Cup. So was Dave right. Bassett there on the day? He was. Um, he was actually doing uh, some co-commentary uh, for ITV on that day. Wow, that was probably going to be an easy gig. Liverpool would walk it 3-0 with all that talent, the league winners. And yet, no. I imagine Laurie Sanchez has never bought a pint in the South West postcode since. <laughs> That's probably true, yes. Um, obviously, he went on to different, different things in his career as well. I wouldn't say it was obviously largely based on just that goal in particular, because he had a very storied career before that, that, that particular moment and, and, and after as well. Um, but he obviously went on to be uh, a, a quite successful manager um, at, at several clubs 
at, at even on the international stage. So uh, yeah, yeah. Where did he come from? Who? Where did Wimbledon sign him from? Uh, Reading, I think it was. Yeah, good. I was, I was breezing through some social media and uh, noticed there was a picture of him in uh, a lineup with George Best. So I'm not sure if that was a particular thing Reading had going on with George Best. But there's the two of them together in, in, in a tunnel and uh, ready to play. Ooh. Maybe, was he, I think, Best played for Fulham as well. And oh, several yeah, times. Yeah, I think, I think at, that, at that stage, obviously, a Best career sort of like going on to... Um, late seventies, early eighties. He was obviously doing all the, all the rounds. I think he was playing half a season here and half a season there. But it was just an interesting uh, picture that, that, that caught my eye. I was going to just because Wimbledon won the FA Cup, there was no European football the season after, so Wimbledon couldn't do what Wigan did and become a team playing in Europe, having surprised a, uh, a bigger team to win the FA Cup. So that match at Wembley Stadium. Uh, was the biggest match in Wimbledon's history. And there must be a lot of folk history there because everyone you watched football with was probably there with you. Um, Yes, and obviously at the time, and and still now, we're obviously not a a, a big supported club. So at the time, on the terraces at Wembley, as it were then, um, we were mixing in with lots of Reds fans as well because obviously they managed to get tickets um, for the Don's End, and uh, so uh, we were rubbing shoulders with, with, with Liverpool fans on that day. But was it a nice atmosphere? Was it a carnival? It was a lovely hot day. Yeah, it was in, uh, baking hot, roasting hot. And yeah, because obviously it was one of those things where very, very few actually thought we could actually get a result. So it was a case of obviously, yeah, well, if we keep the score down to two, three, maybe four, it'll be fine. It wasn't obviously a nasty atmosphere at all. And then, obviously, what happened, happened. And I think one of the good things, obviously, about the Liverpool fans that I've noticed over the years is they, they do appreciate when they've been beaten on the day by a team that has actually sort of outthought them maybe a little bit, because I think that's what it was. I think with the coaching system we had with, obviously, Don Howe, um, Ooh, wow. they, 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 put, they, they put together the game plan um, over the course of that week or two beforehand and really laid it into the lads what they had to do. And so the actual coaching won the game and I think one of the biggest things they did on the day was uh, switch uh, Dennis Wise to actually track on John Barnes and they realised Barnes was the big threat so they had to um, double up as it were so I don't think Liverpool were really ready for that on the day but um, he had to sort of had Wise as his shadow obviously Wise is is a tenacious little player I try to say was a little tenacious little player. <laughs> Probably still is. So, um, that, yeah, that was one of the keys, as it were, to, to, to our success of the day. And like I say, um, the Liverpool fans at the end obviously sang their, their, their song for the praises of, of, of their team. But they stood and clapped us as well. So, you know, they knew that they'd been beaten on the day, not as so much by a better team, but a team that really fought hard for, for, for the win. The attendance is given as 98,000. 203 yes. people. I've never been in a crowd. Uh, oh, no, I have. I've been at various pop concerts that I think are close to that. But okay. it must have been quite a thrill because how, how many would go to Plough Lane at the time? 6,000? Yeah, you're talking six, 7,000 average. Um, they did an incentive to get tickets uh, where you had to attend the three home games prior to the final to collect bounces to then swap for a cup final ticket. Mm-hmm. Um, there were sort of loopholes that were found along the way to obviously get tickets. 
I reckon probably, like I say, we were probably 18, 19,000, 20 tops out of actual uh, Dons fans in, 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 actually in the stadium that day. Yeah, it was very similar to what happened in 1984 when people from Watford who had no interest in the football team, especially women, would treat it like a church service. They would wear hats and they would go along and treat it like a function. But Wimbledon actually won. Were there curious female fans especially who wanted a nice day out to Wembley? Yeah, I, I think as, as you, you, you passed it there, I think when you have an occasions where a club has a small following, you do get the opportunity for obviously families um, and partners to actually pay, pay an interest and actually maybe from there get, get the bug. Or at least they know what's going on on a Saturday afternoon, whereas before they didn't. That, that when those opportunities arise, and obviously we've had some of those since, with obviously playoff finals, things like that. So we've been able to take a large number of fans to these uh, big big cup finals and, and, and big days. When when you think back then, obviously when uh, the 80s, the 90s, the sort of cup uh, final still meant something. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it doesn't mean anything now to, to, to those involved in it, but there has it has lost its edge a little bit. Yeah. So, but back but back then. The cup final, especially when you go back to even, even further to the seventies, um, when it was the, the only real live game that was on TV every year, apart from obviously the, the, the internationals. And, and, and again, the good thing about that, and I think it's come back this season, it was always on both both channels, both uh, mainstream mm. channels. Mm-hmm. So uh, they, and, and going back then, you'd have the build up that was start at like nine, ten o'clock in the morning sometimes. So it was. A, it was an all-day thing, basically. I haven't checked YouTube yet, but is the build-up to the 88 final that you would have missed because you were travelling up either the yeah. A40 or however you got there? Was there a football yeah. special? Yes, um, I believe there was on that day. Uh, I think I went with a couple of friends in the car. We parked somewhere nearby and walked. Um, but I'm fairly sure there was, there was, there was uh, extra, extra services laid on. Again, there is no way this Liverpool team should be losing. This is the um, the league winners. I think they won, what was that, number 17. Grobelart, Nickel, Gillespie, Hansen, Ablett, Houghton, Spackman, McMahon, Barnes, Beardsley, Aldridge. And they brought on Mulbu and Johnston. Um, and I want you to run through the 13 players who appeared <laughs> in oh, that yeah, final. I've given you the goalkeeper. Memory. Uh, yeah, Besson, and then obviously I think we've got um, Andy Storm, Eric Young, the central defence, Terry Seelan, Clive Goodyear at, at the full-backs, Sanchez, you've mentioned, and Wise being, being mid- midfielders with uh, Vinnie Jones. And then up front, we had uh, Alan Cork and John Fashionu. Is that 10 or 11? That's um, 10, Terry. Substitutions, although we had uh, John Scales come on quite late, who had actually played out of position. He's normally an offender. He played up front for the last five, 10 minutes. Um, and Laurie Cunningham actually was on our books at that time. That is an amazing so factoid. You just missed Terry Gibson, who was the number seven. Terry Gibson, that's the one. But yeah, yeah. that's an yeah. amazing factoid. You had a Real Madrid, ex-Real Madrid player. Yes, uh, and obviously his 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 storied career not so much ended with us because um, he, he did go back over to Spain shortly afterwards uh, before he tragically uh, died. But yeah, the last I, think, I, believe, I believe I'm right in saying the last medal he won was yeah. was was with us. How did he end up at Wimbledon? Um, I think it was one of those things where um, he was a free agent. He he sort of lost his place in in, in one of the teams he was in in Spain. And again, because we had Don Howe 
in, in our in our ranks, and he was obviously filing through the the uh, loan players that we could possibly get at the time. So obviously straight from the squad, going through sort of January, February, and realised his name was there. And now I don't know how the actual talks come about and who convinced him that we would have been the place for him at that particular time. But uh, yeah, it, 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 he came. He only played maybe eight or nine games, league games. Uh, I think he scored a couple of goals. But yeah, there he was and uh, played the last half hour or so at, at, at Wembley. Which is extraordinary. So Wimbledon having won, there were three big moments for Wimbledon in the game. The goal, the penalty save and the final whistle when you'd won the game. From yeah. memory, what got the biggest noise? Well, uh, OK... I would probably say the save because it come at a point where you're looking at about 25 minutes to go and it's one of those things where in those games, uh, tight games, big final uh, games, where if a save is made like that and you start to think, this is our day. So it's a cheer as much of obviously of joy and, and relief. So you've got that mixed emotion all pouring out. Because after that, I don't think Liverpool really had a proper chance. And it was all like sort of their life was snuffed out of their their, their wings and, and they couldn't gain anything from that. If the goal, if, if the penalty had gone in and, and, and they scored, um, they probably would have gone on to, to, to win the game. Yeah. But being, being such a huge moment, that probably had the biggest roar. Um, the whistle itself, again, was probably relief because it was finally over. And then obviously we could relax and obviously celebrate after that. Was it a good game? Because this is 1988 and the back pass wasn't abolished until 1992. So Wimbledon's tactic was obviously bung it to big fash. But the time wasting and the knocking back, it would have helped Wimbledon. So do you think Wimbledon wouldn't have won that fixture had it occurred in 1993? Because they were able to effectively waste or kill the time for 50 minutes. Yeah, I mean, I think it did play a part towards the end. Um, again, whenever we could actually get possession, I wouldn't say they laid siege on us, but they they did have the lion's share of possession. In, in terms of obviously going back to your, your original point, it was a good game. When you look back at it, it's not a classic by, by by no means, but it's one of those things where if you're a fan of the team that wins, then you don't really care about how how it's played, as obviously it's obviously played fairly and won, won fairly. So. Yeah, you, if, if a neutral looked down and said, "All oh, right, let's look at this uh, game," because I've heard it was a giant killing and it was a massive upset, that's fine. That's what you'll see, but you won't get a grade A entertainment game, game of football. Mm. Um, in, in terms of obviously time wasting, like I say, it played a small part towards the end. Um, there was a few knockbacks, which obviously wouldn't be be allowed now. Um, but I think it went for both sides as well, because obviously Liverpool had to sort of sometimes actually sort of like had to reset and go again so they were obviously looking to pass about back a little bit as well to obviously keep possession before they could make another charge forward yeah and 25 years on I was at Wembley when Wigan did beat Manchester City Joel Robles made one of the best saves I've ever seen from Tevez right down in front of us and then big Ben Watson headed the winner so that was stymied that their success was tarnished a little because they got relegated four days after so they played in European competition while being a second tier team but thanks to Harry Dave Bassett do you call him Harry or Dave? Both I think he's happy with both yeah <laughs> very interesting Chris and Harry but Dave he goes by and, and the great Bobby Gould who, who managed Wimbledon yeah. Wimbledon were one of the clubs when the first division became the Premier League you started the inaugural Premier League didn't you? We did yeah when did football uh, change 
Was it with the back pass or did it take a couple of seasons for Wimbledon's, uh, for, for things to change, uh, for it to become a Premier League rather than just First Division Deluxe? It was a slow transition because obviously when you've got that label, even when you try to play football, more often than not, you, you, you do resort to obviously that, that long ball tactic, which we're, we, we were famous for. But when uh, Bobby Gould left and we had people like Ray Harford come in, who obviously were a bit more savvy in terms of actually getting the ball down. That's that, that's no disrespect to uh, to uh, Bobby Gould, uh, who obviously himself was 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 a very good footballer for, for, for many many good teams. But you, like, like you said right, right at the very start, you played to your strengths, and obviously we knew our strengths. So there was a slow transition uh, through the early stages of the uh, Premiership. So you're looking probably even as far as the late 90s before you really saw a change. But then because we had many changes of, of, of manager and the styles changed a lot, so when we actually go forward to when we got relegated and it was actually under the... Uh, when Egil Olsen was manager and uh, he, he was the one that actually was in charge for the, for the lion's share of that season we got relegated. And his, his style did virtually go back to... He, he tried to get yeah. the Norwegian national team style of football into club football and it didn't work after we had successfully gone away from that style. So when you've got people like uh, Robbie Earle in the team, Michael Hughes in the team, Efren Okoku, it was a different brand of football that we were, we, we were playing and obviously very successful. When we had Joe Kinnear as, as manager... Um, we reached two two cup semi finals and finished uh, sixth in the league. And for again a, a, a small team like us, as it were, that was an, an amazing season that we were that close to getting to another final, finishing in the top six, um, which was at that time just just outside a, 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 a UEFA Cup place. So we were doing good things, but then obviously change happened. Yes, the change which is outlined in Show Me the Way to Plough Lane. Um, which is available on pitch, the best of the publications, uh, £16.99. I'm just, I do have that 93-4 season up there. Sixth place, Joe Kinnear, fifth round of both the domestic cups. Dean Holdsworth with 24 goals, and you were playing at Selhurst Park. Yeah. So we know why you had to move from Plough Lane. It's because 97 people died at Hillsborough, right? That is... A reason, it won't be the sole reason. And obviously that's something that I try to put across in the book. The fact, obviously, um, that was a contributing factor, but the main the, the main reason behind our actual having to move from Plough Lane, from my opinion, and many, many others, um, especially from speaking to others for, for the book, would be uh, laid squid on the shoulders of Sam Hamer, the owner. In, in conjunction with the uh, council, um, we tried many, many ways to stay at Plough Lane, whether it be on the actual existing ground that was there, which obviously was deemed unfit for uh, the the, uh, Premier League and after Hillsborough especially. Um, And obviously all all the stadiums had to change. We we were finding ways where we could actually adapt that that, that existing site. But for some reason or other, and uh, uh, Sam Amand kept knocking those back. And going, going back to what you were saying about the dog track, um, we even looked into uh, changing the dog track or even actually go, co- coexisting with, with, with the dogs. And at that time, obviously, there was uh, stock car racing there. Um, I think Speedway was sort of just sort of dying out there. But they had, it was quite 
it was, it was it was doing okay for what its purpose was, but we knew that we could breathe fresh life into it if we incorporated a, a football ground in, into it as well, whether it be solely for for football or as, as a joint purpose stadium. Um, but every, every which way we turned, Sam Hamam always blocked it. He realised that if we're going to be part of the Premier League family, we needed to be maybe bigger than what we were. And so he always had this grand vision of this big stadium where we could fill it, 30,000 people, etc. That's what he was aiming for. So that ultimately led to the move to Selhurst Park because he, he realised that, well, he, he thought that his realisation could be met by going to a bigger stadium. And instead of obviously looking into staying where we were, keeping within our roots um, and actually trying to do something at Plough Lane. I was just thinking about Ken Bates and Chelsea, the fact that in southwest London there's Chelsea, who were the big team. But in the early 1990s, they were not doing fantastically well. So I wonder if Sam Haman was jealous of Ken Bates or wanted to get to the level of Ken Bates rather than having any realism or realistic aspect that watching John Fashion, who had the ball down for Terry Gibson or Robbie Earle, was going to attract 30,000 people. Well, again, this is something that um, I'm not sure... Um, if you look at obviously the way other other chairmen and owners and football clubs were doing their business, because he was very single-minded, and like, like, like I say, that's what led him to these these uh, decisions which took us away from Plough Lane. I think he 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 knew, and this is something that he always tried to put put down. He he knew that the actual fan base obviously didn't want to go um, to Sellhurst or elsewhere. And they were doing all they could. They, they were helping the council draw up plans. They were helping the council visit places and drawing up several different sites that, that, were, that were possible. But because he had this vision um, that could take us forward, um, and you, you go forward to 97, where there was talk of us going to Dublin, and that he sort of joined hands with uh, Joe Kinnear, obviously is uh, Irish, and um, they tried to convince the League of Ireland teams that to have a premiership team on their doorstep would, would be uh, a benefit to them because obviously you'd have more interest in, in their league. Players would have obviously almost like, an, almost like a feeder league in, in, into Wimbledon because if you've got a, a team based in, in Dublin and you've got a League of Ireland teams that can obviously feed into that and obviously they, their players can become better and well, well known across in, in, in the Premier League. So he had this grand vision and it was uh, drawn up by five or six other people that were obviously part of the consortium that wanted to go to Dublin. That was pretty much on the go. And then the League of Ireland team uh, stepped in with their chairman and said, um, we don't want this. If we have a, a, a premiership team on our doorstep, there is no good of it because everyone will, if, this, if it's successful, everyone will stop coming to our games and they'll start attending those games we'll lose our uh, fan bases and therefore we will cease to be. So we, we can't approve this. And in the end, because they said no, um, the plug was pulled on that one. I can't think that Sam Herman didn't know that that would happen because of, because of everything being as it was. But at that time, Wimbledon didn't really have a youth system because, uh, to go back to the 70s, the roots of Wimbledon were amateur. Did they only turn professional in 1978 when they were elected? Well, yes, it was around that time, obviously, when we got elected um, after winning the Southern League uh, three times on, on, on bounce. 
because back then it was, like you say, an, an election system. And that, that uh, campaign that we led um, through Ron Nodes, actually, who, who led mm. that campaign, he was, he was in charge of the team at that time. And uh, he, he led the campaign for us to get in, into the Football League. And uh, once that was successful, yes, we did start to obviously uh, turn, turn a bit more pro. And Nodes had some money that he could obviously make, make the facilities uh, better as well. Yeah, I don't know as much about Ron Nodes as I should. Wasn't he the owner-manager of Palace? Um, well, when he, got, when he got involved with Palace, I think, yeah, he was very hands-on. Um, he wasn't. He wasn't to that, that, that that extent uh, with us. He, he was. He was the owner, but um, he never managed the uh, club. And I think he left, obviously, the manager to it. Very good. And that team, uh, obviously, Wing Commander Reap um, had his tactics, and it makes sense if you want to win a game, get the ball as close to the opposition goal as possible. Oh, be honest. Did you like watching that? Or would you have preferred the silkiness of a Glenn Hoddle or an Aussie Ardiles or any number of people you saw on Match of the Day in the big match? Yeah, sure. I can see where you're coming from. Obviously, you appreciate good players and good football. You are left in awe because what you do see at your ground is very much the up-up-up-and-under style of football. But the, the, the flip side of that is when, when, you, when you're growing up watching that, whether obviously through, through the 70s, and I started going in the um, uh, mid-80s. So when, when, you, when you're used to seeing that week in, week out, and you don't know much different apart from what you see on the TV, and apart from when obviously those teams do, do, do come to visit, yes, that, that, that's, that's who we are. That's what our club is all about at that time. And that's why... We had such a successful uh, period through the 80s, getting up through the divisions, and then successful uh, times in the first division because teams didn't like coming to us with our tiny little ground that had no he- heating in the dressing rooms. They, 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 we, it was almost like we were one, one goal up before we set foot on the pitch yeah. because of that. And then because of our tactics and our style, a lot of the games were won through that. Now, often there were games, obviously, where we would get turned over. Some games you wouldn't expect us to be turned over, but... I mean, it, it was it was what what we what we were all about, and we, we we enjoyed having having that because we had success. And it's so sad that you didn't get to play in Europe because of um, and the Heysel ban. So the Heysel ban meant you couldn't play in Europe. The Hillsborough disaster meant you couldn't play at Plough Lane. And then in the 2000s, something happened that we must discuss. This is the most pertinent time for you to get a strong strong drink, Gary Jordan. <laughs> Before that, we will talk about um, Out of the Shadows, which was your first book. And it's now 40 years since the events that you document. This is a team with Brooking, Coppel, Keegan, Francis, Robson, McDermott, Hoddle and Wilkins, who were the elite of the English game. Plus, you had Clements and Shilton in goal. This is not a bad England team. It qualified for the World Cup in Espana. Uh, and you were very young, so you would have consumed this on telly. Yes, vaguely remember the 78 World Cup, even though England weren't there. And I say vaguely because you, I, I don't remember seeing any of it live. I don't think much of it was shown live. Um, but you, 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 over time, you pick up bits and pieces and you remember the ticker tape coming down at the final and things like that. So you get that colourful image in your head and those grainy images. And, that, and it wasn't too far away from that in, in 1982. 
it was a lot more colourful from what I can remember seeing on TV. Um, obviously, in Spain, you have that red-hot sun, um, which played a factor in, in, in our opening game um, and, and throughout the tournament. The England team was very, very, very strong. And the reason why, obviously, I chose that as the title out of the shadows because we hadn't qualified since 1970. And so even then, well, yes, obviously, we won in 66, uh, reached the course final in, in, in 70, where we got knocked out by West Germany in their sort of revenge match for the final in 66. Um, and from there, we had uh, glorious failings to get to the 74 and 78 World Cups. So coming out of the shadows seems quite, quite a good title as we qualified in 82, even though the qualification group and, and, and the story behind that was probably more dramatic than the finals itself because uh, we... We struggled to get to the actual finals and relied on the, on the last uh, game uh, victory at Wembley with a goal scored by Paul Mariner. Yes, the late Paul Mariner who passed away last year. Yeah. Whose obituaries... There was a really, really good piece. Uh, Henry Winter said that the biography which uh, Paul had written, but it's published around the time he died, was one of his books of the year. Right. And, and um, Paul's son was able to talk about how great his dad was. Mariner, who was Bobby Robson's teacher's pet at Ipswich, and was one of the strikers to represent England at the 82 World Cup, which was in Spain. Um, the opening three games was, hang on, it was France, Kuwait, and Czechoslovakia. And Czechoslovakia. Um, but yep. in 82, there was the second group stage where three teams played against each other head-to-head and then one advanced to the quarterfinals or semifinals. Semi-finals. Yeah. Semi-finals. So England did play five games. And it being 1982, the scores for both Spain and West Germany were? Um, yes, they both finished uh, goalless. Yeah. Were they good goalless draws? Which, which, which? Uh, well, no, because obviously that, that ultimately cost us. Throughout the tournament, our goals started to dry up through a thrilling opening 27 seconds when Brian Robson scored against France. Um, we eventually won that game 3-1. And obviously France went on to do uh, good things in that tournament. We then beat Czechoslovakia um, and, and Kuwait by two and one. The second phase, which is the, the only time a group stage has, has, has taken part in, in, in the World Cup, they, they come out and obviously added more teams in. So they had to find a way to uh, feed more teams into a second phase. Um, so they uh, went for a group stage. Um, and our pairings as it were with West Germany and Spain come about because Spain had lost to Northern Ireland in their Ooh, group yeah. stage Jerry, Jerry Armstrong uh, yeah and West yeah. Germany had lost to Algeria in, in, their, in their group stage and only qualified because they um, well <laughs> rigged is probably the best word to put it yes they, it was uh, the Austria game yeah. Austria. I must just say yeah. Ibrahim Mustafa who is um, has written a book called No Longer Naive that came out on pitch, it being the African Cup of Nations this month. Ibrahim writes brilliantly about that Algeria game and it seems to be the shock of shocks that uh, only because of what happened against Austria do people not remember that Algeria game. But Schumacher would have been in goal for Germany. So England would have known him when Schumacher went in on Batistin in the semi-final. Yes, yes. But by that point, Um, England were out. Yeah. So, after drawing against uh, Germany, and Germany had beaten Spain, so obviously you've got these three, these three games that are happening in quite, quite quick succession. So, West Germany had beaten Spain, which meant Spain were all, all but out. After we drew with Germany in a game which we had a chance to win, 
as they did as well late on, so we could have been out as well, or at least in a pretty much a shootout game with Spain. But we, we, we were favoured against the Spaniards because they hadn't had a good tournament, even though it was a home tournament, whether the pressure had gotten to them. They uh, were there for the taking. But because we were carrying Brooking and Keegan throughout the whole tournament, we took them with, with injuries, so hoping they would actually get fit throughout the tournament. So it was a risk itself where we could have maybe um, taken other players. But when you've got, uh, well, at that time, probably one of the best players in Europe, Kevin Keegan, you don't really sit him, sit him at home. Mm. Um, and and he, was, he was rushing around at the time trying to uh, get his, his injury fixed. He was actually uh, went against the team doctor's wishes to uh, a, a specialist in, in, in Germany. Flew out in secret. Yeah. So in, in, in the eighth, um, that was the last roll of the dice, uh, throwing on Brooking and Keegan with uh, 21 minutes to go. Both of them had a chance to score. I wouldn't say um, easy chances, but they were chances by, by their standards. We had to win by two clear goals, because like I say, West Germany had beaten Spain by one. If they had gone in, we'd have been through. History shows that they uh, both uh, chances didn't go in and we were out. Yeah, it's one of those things where having played five games, uh, not lost the game, conceded once, very rare do you find a team on that sort of form go out of a tournament. But because of the way the uh, second phase was, was uh, dealt with, we were on the plane home. 